Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. So, what's going on in the world? Well, we interrupt the trial about, you know, the cops killing Derek Chauvin, killing George Floyd, with a story of a 13-year-old boy being shot to death by, his name is Adam Toledo, by Officer Eric Stillman, unarmed, hands in the air, bang, dead. We interrupt the report on this police shooting with another mass shooting, eight dead in a shooting at the FedEx facility in Indianapolis. A gunman killed eight people and wounded several others before taking his life. This is another, you know, going out in a blaze of glory suicide. Um, These are all too often, you know, all too frequent, and they're facilitated by the easy availability of guns. Right. I mean, this does happen in other societies, you know, in, in, in Japan or in, you know, the UK or something. Somebody will, you know, stab somebody with a knife and then kill themselves. But, but killing eight people, last month, eight people were fatally shot at a massage business in Atlanta. Ten died in gunfire at a supermarket in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, another one in Indianapolis. This was in Indianapolis, this FedEx facility. There was another one a little earlier this year. Five people, including a pregnant woman, were shot and killed in January by a man who had uh, apparently previously killed three people before he came down here. When are we going to figure out that guns are a public health emergency? I mean, when are we going to figure out what the rest of the developed world figured out decades ago? So there's that. Mike in Lameda, California. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, just wanted to offer some expert testimony on the Chauvin trial, which I have not heard raised as such yet. And that is that the officers in Minneapolis are supposedly certified in CPR. And during the course of that nine minutes plus tape, where the rookie farther down the body tells Chauvin at, after the uh, off-duty fire department emergency medical technician had complained that they should be taking a pulse. After the rookie says there's no pulse, should we roll him over? Chauvin just uh, keeps on kneeling on the guy's neck for another minute. So that's a right. direct violation of the basic uh, emergency action, action principles uh, for everybody's CPR. Yeah, it's called duty to render care. That was brought up in the trial. I caught that. It was uh, referred to in a sort of a backhand way, whether he had the duty to render care. However, it's also a violation of the basic training that when you have no pulse, that's when you start compressions. Um, And there's another thing about CPR training, which a lot of POs uh, apparently sort of take the wrong way. That is, you're doing uh, checking your airway, your breathing, and your circulation. And if the patient is talking to you, supposedly they have an airway and it's patent. But that's uh, just a quick check, you know, what do I need to do first sort of protocol. If they're in a situation where they are having difficulty breathing or they might be losing their breathing, for instance, somebody who's in a trench cave-in or trapped in an avalanche or has 300 pounds of body weight, kneeling on their rib cage in their neck, that breathing 
that ability to talk is not diagnostic. It's not prognostic about what it's going to be. So right. that's just a, a point I, I have seen in other cases, like the Earl Garner thing, where the guy, oh, you can talk, you're fine. Not necessarily the case. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it absolutely isn't. And, and they were acting like the fact that he could talk. And the same thing with Eric Garner, by the way. The cop was acting like, well, hey, you can talk. Why are you complaining you can't breathe? Well, there's a whole difference between gasping a breath out and being able to take a lung full of air. There's just a huge difference. And, you know, we've seen this over and, and over and over and again. There's compression of the lungs involved, which yeah. gets all there those air sacs closed there down. Michael in Brookline, Massachusetts. Hey, Michael, what's up here? I don't think this idea is going to go over very big, but I think that basically police violence and killings can be eliminated with strong policy, but nobody's going to, because of the unions. I, I listened with interest at the police union trying to justify the shooting of Dante Wright, and a mm. couple of things came to mind. I thought, I didn't think that it was justified, but my thought is that police should be relieved of their duties. They should be fired if they shoot first in an encounter. So, like, who's, I, I forget, it, was, it wasn't Eric Garner. There was a little, Tamir Wright, I think, was running away from a cop. Tamir Rice. Yeah, Rice, yeah. He was running away with a... I he wasn't know. running away. He was playing with a toy gun in a park, and right. he was like 10 years old. I mean, you know. Right. And he seriously? was killed, you know. Yeah. You know so Within three seconds fired, of the cop car arriving, as I recall. Yeah, right. If a policeman fires first, he's fired. And the other thing, if, anybody, if a policeman shoots somebody and they're killed, they cannot go out in the field for another year. Those two yeah. things would eliminate police violence. Now, I don't think they would do much harm on the other end, frankly. Because if there's, if sure, if you have a gangland-style thing, like it's not happening now, but like the St. Valentine's Day massacre, the other people are firing first, you know? And Well, yeah. that was a mob hit versus a mob hit, too. I mean, it's kind of a different I, thing. But, Michael, your point is, is, is well made. Thank you very much for that. And I can't disagree. Jeremiah in Coldport, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jeremiah, what's up? Hey, Tom. I wanted to talk about uh, police shootings and offer my perspective as someone who works in social services. As Mm -hmm. someone in my profession, we are trained that if we're dealing with situations that could escalate into a physical altercation, that the safety of the client comes first. Okay, mm-hmm. And there's this expectation that as an experienced and trained professional, that is my responsibility to de-escalate the situation. But when it comes to interactions with the police, it seems to me, from my observations, that it is the expectation of the untrained, unexperienced citizen to de-escalate the police officer. Right, we've seen three that? in a row here now where the citizen was saying, calm down, guys, and the cops were getting more and more hysterical. Yeah, exactly. It seems that the the cops are escalating the situations, and they're the ones causing the situations to get to the heightened point to where they decide, oh, I need to draw my gun, I need to kill this person. I mean, should we as citizens be trained on how to deal with police officers? Although I'm not sure that would make a difference with African-Americans, who seems that no matter what they do, it doesn't matter. They get killed anyway. I mean, yeah, and actually most American African-American families, and, and, and I'm assuming that this is also true of Hispanic and Asian families and Native American families, do teach their children how to deal with police. You know, the famous The Talk. And the only group in America that doesn't are white people, by and large. I, you know, and, and you know, for good reason. White privilege is alive and well. And and you know, if you're a person of color, the police are coming for you. It's it's just very unfortunate. We need to change the way we do policing. It's basic premise. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff. What's up? You know, as Congressman Khanna, Bernie, and Barbara Lee have all said, you know, the president's withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, it's a good first step. And Congressman Khanna told Amy Goodman yesterday, diplomacy, relief aid, and education are the keys to ending violent extremism abroad. 
I would say that the same thing would apply to here at home as well. Ending violent extremism here is going to take, you know, uh, jobs and education and relief aid where necessary. But, you know, we also need to root out we also need to root out white supremacy from our police and military. Germany's had a big problem with this in their military. Uh, Tom, do you think the uh, insurrection of January 6th is going to lead to an investigation into our police and the white nationalism and supremacy in our military and police forces? Yeah, it's already started. And the military is, all the branches of the military have a mandate to look for and root out white supremacy and potentially violent extremism. And this is not so much happening across the nation in our police forces. And I think, frankly, it should be. I think that, you know, we should be having, it should be mandated, frankly. I mean, or at least any police force that's taking, you know, any kind of federal assistance that, you know, we can make it contingent on that. So, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jeff. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? Hey, Tom. You know, I started calling into your program about five years ago, and what the catalyst for that was was the uh, Ferguson uprising, and I know Mm -hmm. I mentioned that to you before. And over those years, you and I have had conversations over and over again about Sandra Bland, Oscar Peterson, over and over again. And earlier, you had a caller call in and you had mentioned the talk, which is a real thing with black people. And you also mentioned that I'm sure it happens with, uh, I'm paraphrasing, Asians and Native Americans, Latinos. Tom, it kind of incensed to me because this is almost uniquely directed at us. I don't know of any, and I'm sure that there's a three-legged dog somewhere, but most of them have four. I don't recall any Arab American or Native Americans as of late that this repeatedly happens to. I don't know if the Latino Brianna Taylor, that woman was asleep in her bed. I've got a daughter her age. And so it really affected me when you said it, and I know that you said it not meaning any harm and addressing the issue. In fact, you're one of the first people to ever do it, and you do it consistently. But we need to, as a country, realize, and you know this from one of your favorite books that I have, uh, The Hidden History of the Second Amendment, that this comes from slave patrols. And so there is a connection, there is a nexus between this constantly happening to us. And uh, I just wanted to kind of point that out as respectfully as I could. Yeah, and you did, and thank you. My memory may be faulty here, but my recollection is, I'm on Dean Obadallah's show a fair amount, and he comes on this show from time to time. Dean is a, a Muslim American who does a talk show host here on Sirius XM a little later on in the evening. And I seem to recall him talking about the conversation, essentially, within the Arab American community. Now, that may have been more specific to the time around 9-11, particularly when Trump was trashing Arab Americans. But I get your point, Kenyatta. I absolutely get your point. And you're absolutely right. The vast majority of this kind of violence is directed toward black people. And black people are the ones who most, you know, are most in need of warning their kids. So, yeah. Okay. I stand corrected. Thank you, Kenyatta, for the call. John in Ocala, Florida. John, we have just one minute. You got a quick one? Yes. Post office. Are you talking about killing black people? But you can ruin somebody's house and damn that kill them in the same way. This man, DeJoy, by slowing down the post office, is making a lot of people mortgage show up late and then ruining their credit, which Mm -hmm. is the same as, uh, you know, going from, I had a 1.99% rate, and now it's going up, and I'm being hurt, and uh, it makes me All because your mail got slowed down. Kill somebody I'm on. Yeah. Well, this is the effort by DeJoy and his patrons on the Postal Board of Governors to make the post office so dysfunctional that Americans will say, hey, time to end the post office and sell it off to FedEx, which, by the way, is not unionized. The Postal Service is the largest unionized employer in the United States and has the largest fleet of vehicles. And they wanted to solarize or electrify it. And DeJoy is like, no, we'll give the contract to a a gas company. Right. John, thanks. is the Tom Hartman Program. 
Rick in Aberdeen, no, Altadena, California. Hey, Rick, what's up? Well, look, I have some issues that I want to talk about very quickly, and I see a connection, but I don't hear people talking about the relationship between these things. And here's my short list. Uh, U.S. policy in Central America, authoritarian governments in Central America, South and Central America, poverty and suffering among their people, U.S. gun policy, gangs and organized crime in, uh, in, in Latin America, drugs, and then finally back around to immigration. And you can keep swinging that circle around and around. And I could be wrong, but I see, I see a direct cycle of things, but I don't hear anybody really talking about everything, the big picture. What do you think? I agree with you, Rick. And this is why I thought the biggest story of the week that wasn't covered was the fact that Joe Biden is currently negotiating with the uh, Central American countries, with Costa Rica, Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico, to deal with not only the security issues, but more importantly, the social and economic and ecological issues that are driving people out of that region and up here to the, the United States. And that's that's dealing with the actual cause. It's not as sexy as, oh my God, it's a caravan coming, you know, but it's going to be a hell of a lot more effective. And I'm with you. I think that that's a really, really, really good thing. Ron in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Hey, Ron, what's up? Tom, there has to be a correction. You know, we're all saying our 20-year involvement in Afghanistan. We've been involved in Afghanistan since 1979. That's when the first authorization by uh, Jimmy Carter for arming the uh, Mojahedin. It was renewed in 1981. Yeah. Charlie Wilson's war. And ever since then, ever since then, we've been uh, involved in Afghanistan, one way or the other. So that that correction has to be made. Now, if I may, sure. about Tucker Carlson. You know, this is my sort of my opinion, but also my my uh, true. His father was big in the uh, Voice of America, which is a CIA front group for. Propaganda. Are you sure? I thought his father was the head of PBS, Corporation uh, heard, for Public I heard, Broadcasting. Uh, I heard. Uh, I, I may be cor- stand corrected, but maybe I, he I did both. Who knows? I don't know. But, but your, your point, Ron. Voice of America. I, I contend it, and the name Tucker Carlson comes from an old uh, minstrel show name. His father trained him as to be the best, to be the president, I contend, and to give him the speaking ability. I'll bet he set up a radio station for that child in the house, and he, he has perfected his, his craft to, to almost total perfection. And his ideology, again, goes with the Voice of America and their CIA front group destroying democracies all over the world. And so the, Tucker Carlson's name, his, his whole training, I, I contend, has, has been a, uh, uh, a, a stage show. It, it, it may be, Ron. I mean, we don't have to go all ad hominem on him. It, it's not about who he is or how he was raised or who his parents are. It's the fact that he's openly promoting white supremacy and the whole white replacement theory hysteria, which has led to wars and deaths and all kinds of stuff. It's toxic. It's just very toxic. Ron, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. More of your calls right after this. Stick around. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, 
or enter the code Hartman, the two ends, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Greg in Charlotte, North Carolina, says here you disagree with me. So you go to the front of the line. What do you disagree about? Oh, thanks, Tom. I saw video footage where I saw Toledo did have an arm. He did have a weapon. I saw still frame footage. Not at the time he was shot. Well, how does the officer know that? Because the kid had his hands up in the air and the spotlight was on him. I saw the video, too. What I saw. That's not what I saw in the film, but we disagree. Second point I wanted to call you about was... Well, you talk about we can disagree, Greg, but everybody in America saw that video. It's playing on loop on CNN. The kid has his hands in the air. He's got a spotlight in his face and the and the, and the cop shot him anyway. That's that's your interpretation. That's not what I saw. No, that's and what I saw. The Republicans. What about President Obama? I was looking for the CFR. Do you know how many innocent civilians were killed by Obama's drone strike? Three hundred and twenty. I doubt he killed 500,000 innocent Americans. I really doubt that. You know, you've, had, you've got 25 deaths in Taiwan. You've got seven deaths in New Zealand. You've got uh, maybe a couple of hundred deaths in Australia. These are countries that did the right thing that Trump was willing to do up until April 7th when the news came out that mostly black people were dying. Vanity Fair did a deep dive with inside sources in the White House, uh-huh. quoting Jared Kushner and these guys saying, hey, you know, if we don't do anything, if we stop mailing these five masks out to every family, the post office was all set to do that. Louis DeJoy, for God's sake, was going to do that. Hey, hey, and if we stop that and if we stop all these other programs, we're going to see blue state governors take the heat for this and mostly black people dying. Why are we trying to do anything? And at that point, the, the Trump administration started the uh, within two weeks. They were they were tweeting reopen Michigan. Remember that? You know, he was trying to kill people as his electoral strategy. And you want to talk about Barack Obama? Seriously, Greg? Hey, Tom, did you know what President Obama's comments were after that? They told him about the, the tally of drone strikes. He reportedly told AIDS, turns out I'm really good at killing people. Didn't know it was that was going to be a strong suit of mine. What are your comments on that from the former president? Well, A, I don't know that he said that. B, But let's assume for a moment that it's an accurate quote. I don't know the circumstances under which he said it. I don't know if he was saying it sadly or if he was saying it enthusiastically. I just have no idea. But, but Greg, I can tell you right off the top that Donald Trump committed mass murder. He did it not by negligence. He did it by intent. And we know from his own words, just last week, he said, whatever Fauci told me to do, I did the opposite. And he did the opposite. And 550,000 Americans are dead. If you're going to try and pin any of that on Obama, Greg, we got nothing to talk about. Well, no, I want to ask you one final question, Tom. I hear you trash Reagan and Republicans, but I want to talk about your hero. FDR. And this is for what FDR said about the Jews in private. This is from the Los Angeles Times. Not only was FDR anti-Asian, he was anti-black and he was an anti-Semite. And let me give you some quotes of what he said is the best way to settle the offer. What he, FDR Greg, offered, if you're going to quote anti-Semitic quotes from, from FDR, let me just stop you right here, Greg. Um, yeah, it, I'm willing to acknowledge. It, Tom? No, no. I, I'm. Uh, let me just finish a sentence here. I'm willing to acknowledge mm-hmm. that. You know, I don't know any specific quotes from FDR that are anti-Semitic, but I just don't want them repeated on the air. Is, is what I'm saying. But the point is, let's say he did. Okay, so we're. 
Let's say he did. I mean, anti-Semitic jokes. I, I can't tell you how many times in the in the 60s and 70s when I was a teenager, I would hear anti-Semitic, anti-black jokes, anti-Polish jokes, you know, all kinds of stuff that today we would consider horrible and insensitive. What I'm concerned about, you know, and, and Nixon, of course, made anti-Semitic jokes all the time. And, and of course, and then you got Trump saying, you know, I don't I, I want guys with the Amicus counting my money. I don't want black guys counting my money, et cetera, et cetera. But None of that, in my mind, is anywhere near as important as what these people did. And what the and, and FDR put this country back together after people like you tried to divide it. Uh, you had the America First movement going in the 1930s, wearing Nazi armbands, giving Hitler salutes, yeah, and talking about yeah, how FDR was trying to turn America into a communist nation. That went on for years. That didn't end until, until we entered World War II. And he was a racist. FDR was an anti-Semite, anti-Asian, may well be. Here's one. May well be. You know, I'll I'll give you. Woodrow Wilson was definitely a racist, and he was a Democratic president. But I'm looking at these people's policies, Greg. I'm frankly, you know, rather than pulling one or two sentences out of probably what were you know bad days in their presidency, or even you know just a bad part of their personality, I'm willing to look at their policies. FDR put America back to work over the objections of Republicans. They didn't want him doing the New Deal. They didn't want him doing Social Security. They didn't want him doing long-term unemployment insurance. They fought him all the way to the Supreme Court on child Uh labor laws. They fought him all the way to the Supreme Court on the right of individual workers to unionize. They fought him all the way to the Supreme Court on his bringing Mm -hmm. electricity into rural areas, the Rural Electrification Administration. You know, LBJ's policies were good. Ronald Reagan okay, reversed much of that stuff. So, Greg, you know, here's, we, here's, we can... We, here's one. Here's, I want to ask you one question about his policies. From the Rockefeller Foundation, the New Deal made America's racial inequality worse. Why would they say that? That's the Rockefeller Foundation. That's not no right-wing organization. That's Rockefeller. Talk. Well, it's probably true. It's probably true. A lot of the New Deal, just like a lot of our highway construction, they would they would intentionally well, you, run you, highways but, but right but through the edges or right through black deal. neighborhoods. It's the way. Yeah, it was the way it was done. It was done wrong. I'm with you, Greg. I'm completely with you. Okay. It was done wrong. And so okay, and that's why Joe agree. Biden says with his new plan, he's going to do it right. Oh. He's going to rebuild our infrastructure in ways that don't exacerbate racial Basically, segregation, you know, racial inequalities as a consequence of segregation. But Greg, nice try. I, you know, and and I realize I was stepping on you a couple times talking there, but, uh, you know, nice try, but uh, no cigar. Jeff in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind? Yes, Tom, I'm concerned about some of the messaging we're hearing here in Iowa. Of course, one of the big ones is uh, uh, the border, uh, how the border, Joe Biden opened the border. Our own Governor Kim Reynolds uh, was asked if she could uh, have some of the children be brought up here uh, to Iowa so they could kind of foster care for them. And uh, she said no. Kim Reynolds said uh, because Joe Biden opened the border, uh, it shouldn't be Iowans' uh, burden to care for these children. And uh, that's that's a pretty sad thing for the supposed wonderful Christian, devout Christians to say, but uh, that's the governor of Iowa. So that message is going around all through Iowa that uh, Joe Biden has opened the border. Uh, I'm yeah. concerned that that's going to be the 2022 message along again with the uh, defund the police. And that works so effectively in Iowa that we lost two congressional seats here to the Republicans. We only have one Democrat now left. So we're not hearing a rebuttal to that. And that message has to start getting out there. Yeah, I'm with you, Jeff. Uh, Joe Biden not only did not open the border, but the border is as sealed as it was during Donald Trump. Um, He has let some asylum seekers in to pursue their asylum claims. International and U.S. law both require that. Trump was ignoring both those laws and was facing multiple lawsuits over it. 
And one of the things that I think was probably the most underreported story of last week, and I was looking through my stuff, I had it with me, but I, I think the cat knocked it on the floor yesterday when he was jumping on my table. But, you know, one of the most underreported stories was the story that Joe Biden is working out a deal with Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Mexico to help these countries strengthen their internal systems, not just their police systems. Yes, you know, he, in fact, he's getting some criticism for giving them military aid so that they can strengthen their borders between their countries. So fewer Guatemalans are going to travel through Mexico to get here. But the big thing that he's doing is trying to address the effects of climate change in those Central American countries where you're seeing creeping desertification, wiping out small family farms, and dealing with the violence of the drug lords and drug crimes and things like that. He's actually working in and with the Central American countries to diminish the the pressure, the flow of people who might be coming to the United States. And nobody's talking about it. I was just, you know, surprised to read the story, actually, and see that nobody was talking about it. And so I put it in my stack of stuff to talk about, and I'll find it during the break, because I'm pretty sure it's on the floor right now with the stuff the cat knocked down. But You know, I get it, Jeff. This is their thing. You know, they're always looking for something to avoid talking about how the fact that the main agenda of the Republican Party is to screw working people. It has been since 1981, since the Reagan revolution. Cut their wages, increase taxes on things like Social Security or tips or unemployment benefits cut back on things like food stamps and housing support that people need when they're thrown out of work with things like a pandemic and prevent average people from getting health care. But Jeff, I hear what you're saying and I hope the Democrats can do a better job of their messaging on a lot of these issues. Jeff, thanks for the call. Your calls on whatever's on your mind. We'll be back. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. Nancy in Chuella, Washington. Hey, Nancy, what's on your mind? In 2008, I got stopped, and I had two brown envelopes with gauze in it because I had a tooth pulled the day before, and that's what the dentist gave me. And the cops saw them, and she freaked out. And I'm trying to talk her down. And then when I let her know I have a kid in the car because I was driving foster kids to um, supervise visits with their parents, She pulled me out of the car, threw me on the ground, put her knee in my ribs, and I had had an accident the year before, and all my ribs had broken, and a lot of them hadn't healed Uh yet. And uh, so when they, all these other cops showed up, she called for backup, and when they searched my car, all they found were baby wipes, and I'm yelling at them because I got the kid there, and I had my uh, CPS ID and uh, a book with all the directions to all the foster parents in there, and I'm yelling mm-hmm. at them all these phone numbers, call for the kid, you know, and then when the cop comes back to me, and then after all this, she says, what's in the envelopes? What do you have? Why do you have gauze in those envelopes? And I told her I had a tooth pulled, and she started to cry and say, how could I possibly known that? But right then, another ranking cop comes in, and they charge me with resisting arrest and um uh, disturbing the peace or something and I wind up having to spend a night in jail and everybody Holy knew cow. it was screwed up also Holy I had to go to the hospital because I crushed my chest in that accident so when they cuffed me behind my back I couldn't breathe because I didn't my lungs don't have room to expand as it is that's amazing and you're a, so, I'm assuming you're a white person Nancy and I'm white, and it does happen a lot to white people, but the news won't pick it up. Because in 2008, they had this heinous thing in Spokane, Otto Zem. And after um, all this happened, I looked up all these, I took all these newspaper articles, and I sent them to the DOJ, because I figured if I could show a pattern... Mm-hmm. Because there was a lot. There was a 70-year-old preacher that got killed on his own lawn. This is all one police department doing this? There were video, and it was so damning that they just continued the case because there was nothing to... The cop just beat the guy. Was this all one police department, Nancy? These were police departments up and down the 395 corridor. There There was a lot of local abuse. Every few years they come through and they do a cleaning because cops are asked, telling women, um, if you give me oral sex or I'll I'll arrest you for DUI. That kind uh, of thing. 
And yeah. so no, they I've, come I've heard stories and like this. You know, it's obviously something that happens to black people, an order of magnitude more frequently than white people, but it amplifies the. I understand the, it is more, but it does yeah. happen to a lot of other groups, but the news. I totally get it. I totally get it. It's why we need to reform policing. It's why, Nancy, thank you for the call. We need to completely change the way we do policing in the United States. And it's not like there's not examples. There are examples. Scandinavia is a great place to start. We'll be back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Michael Moore addresses some of this in his movie, Where to Invade Next. It's really worth watching if you haven't seen it yet. I'm sure it's available, you know, wherever you find movies online. Two quick news updates. Over on the Chauvin trial, the defense lawyer, he's basically trying to make the argument that when Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, that George Floyd died of a, quote, sudden heart attack. Now, I have some personal experience of sudden heart attacks. I've not had one, but Louise's father and her brother have both had sudden heart attacks. Her father was, uh, he loved swimming. He was out in the uh, Atlantic Ocean and his brother was with him and his brother noticed he was just floating out there. And so he went out to him and he wasn't responding. He went out to him and and he'd had a heart attack. He was dead, floating in the ocean. And then her brother was visiting two of our kids. One was an EMT our youngest, she's now a physician's assistant, and our son, who had both, I mean, he's a dive instructor. They both had training in CPR, and my brother-in-law was at their house, and he just, like, he was, at one minute he was standing, and the next minute he was on the floor dead. It's that fast. And they both jump on, did CPR, and, you know, one of them called the 9-11, and they did CPR on him for, like, 15, 20 minutes and saved his life. He's completely normal now. Well, to the extent that any of us are normal. <laughs> I love my brother-in-law. He's a wonderful guy, and I'm so glad he's still alive because my kids could save his life. But sudden heart attacks are sudden, and George Floyd did not have a sudden heart attack. It took nine and a half minutes to kill him, to shut his heart down, and to prevent any blood from getting to his then-shut-down heart. I mean, you know, it's just, they are so grasping at straws there. Meanwhile, the woman, Kimberly Potter, the police officer who shot Dante Wright, the 20-year-old black man in Brooklyn Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, has been charged. The police department there notified us all, or the prosecutor's office, said that she will be charged with second-degree manslaughter, which is kind of blowing up the news sites right now. So a lot going on, a lot happening, and, uh, you know, on we go. Jonathan in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hi, Tom. So I got another idea for a chapter in your book about the slave patrols and how the slave patrols morphed into the debt collectors, because that's really what the police are. And that's why so many people are being killed rather than limiting their activities to the small amount of crime that they should They've become the new debt collector. You go back to Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown was killed, and that town ran their municipality on debt collection. It was 20% of the payroll was from fines, from uh, fines and fees. And where did I get that information from? I got it from the Council of Economic Advisors, which issued a brief December 2015, which is a, a an office in the White House where the White House gets all its economic advice from. You know, this is what the police are now. They are going out and towns are making money and they're putting it on the backs of the poor. And uh, all the problems we see regarding racism, regarding crime, it really all comes down to money and mostly down to debt. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's what is at the core of all this. Yeah. In fact, there's a whole chapter about that in my new book on oligarchy. The, this is debt is the instrument that was used to to keep down and even functionally enslave even white people, you know, in the first couple hundred years of our republic and still is for people of all races. Debt is the is you know this extraordinary force that is being used to hold people down. And you know, I had forgotten about the Michael Brown example in Ferguson. That is just so apropos. I mean, you know, you're you're absolutely right, and something that we need to be paying more attention to. Uh, Jonathan, thank you. Excellent, excellent contribution to the conversation. Carol in Portola, California. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. I certainly enjoy your program and your books. Are 
Most interesting, phenomenal. Anyway, I just want to reiterate and ask you why. Every time that you mention, like, insurance, malpractice insurance for cops, they change the subject or something, you'd never find out why they're against it. You would think well, they don't the need it because they have qualified immunity, and they don't want to give up that immunity. You can't sue a cop, an individual cop. You can only sue the police department. And so the police unions are not going to talk about this until you take away their qualified immunity and put them in a category. At least this is my understanding of it. And put them in a category similar to doctors and nurses where they don't have qualified immunity. The institution is not the first body that you go after. And, you know, now granted, you know, policing came out of and you know, policing is the face of government power, whereas physicians in many cases have private practices. So there was a whole different evolutionary path that got us here, you know, protecting the individual physicians as opposed to the cops. But, you know, Carol, I haven't seen a good argument against it either. And I think your point is very well made. Thank you very much for the call and for kicking that in there. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. Oh, welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And uh, let's see here. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, what's up? You brought me back from despair before. I'm just sick of these white racist killer cops. My heart aches for Dante's family. And when I heard Pat Robertson speak out against the 48-year-old officer, Kim Potter, um, that her gun and looked and felt nothing like a big, bright yellow taser. And she was training the new officers to right. who, who to pull over and how to take them down. It, it makes me a little hopeful that Pat Roberts spoke out. But the difference between a taser, a yellow bright taser and a black gun, and what bothers me the most is she goes up to the car window. She sees he has his little boy in the back seat, and she still wants to torture him. She still wants to shoot him in the chest with electrical shocks, and those can kill people as well. And that's her mm-hmm. training season. That's her training session for, for those officers. That upsets me. And she's out. She's out on bail. And and the protesters, the first 40 protesters were arrested. And then the second night, 100 protests were arrested. And Kim Potter is comfy at home. And I believe one other thing, if the Army Lieutenant Lasoro hadn't driven to a welded gas station, I believe he would be dead. So... I think that these killer cops should only be armed with sedation, sedation starting right now. We treat our animals better. We sedate them. We don't shoot them with bullets. So 
Yeah. Help me come back. I, 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 I am with you, Jessica, and if cops are to be armed, I think we had have to have a smaller percentage of our police officers armed. I think that we need to be breaking up the police forces into different divisions that deal with different types of things more effectively. I think that there are a whole lot of things that we ask police to do that really are no, the, no business of police to be doing. And certainly, you know, uh, having a taser available. In fact, I would suggest that the taser be the primary weapon, the thing on the right, on the strong arm side, and your pistol be the other thing. So you have to work to get to the pistol as opposed to work to get to the taser. But but what do I know? I mean, uh, our hearts are all aching at the violence today. It just seems like it's it just never ends. You know, we introduced this program about this particular police violence with another bit of police violence, another killing of an unarmed black man. It is heartbreaking, Jessica. I'm with you. Ron in uh, Worthington, Ohio. Hey, Ron, what's up? I think that I can demonstrate what how, how an officer made that mistake and picked up a you know drew a gun rather than the uh, phaser and how she didn't know okay. that. And once that's understood, I think I uh, you know it's like all good science. If you know what the real problem is, you can begin to address the real problem. Fix okay, it. you've got forty Actually, seconds. Okay, number one, there's an old, old joke. I used to use it in introductory psych to demonstrate this. I want you and your audience to uh, think stop, the word. Okay? Mm -hmm. Okay, now spell stop. Okay, now what do you do when you come to a green light? Normal class situation, (laughs) 80% of the people will say stop. We respond to what's in our brain. That's the world we're reacting to. Well, and that's why the that's why the defense lawyer said, "Do you hear him saying I ate too many drugs?" When what he had actually said was, "I ain't oh, no, done no, any no, drugs." No. Her taser, taser. Woman saw what she in her head because she thought she had pulled the gun because it was a dominant I response. See. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not unwilling to buy that, but still, I think that, that uh, this no, is this should be prosecuted here. Yeah. Ron, I'm sorry we're out of time. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. You know, uh, Ron, thank you very much for the call. I'm sorry that that we only had a minute there, but you got to use it tightly. You got to get right to the point. Mark in Rosendale, New York. Hey, Mark, what's up? To the idea that the police forces are related to the slave patrols, these killings that are happening are public lynchings. Um, yeah. They're being done by government agents, but they really are are the same thing, maybe a little faster. And then the other point is, I don't know if you saw, there's been a few articles in The Guardian about a website called Go Save Go. This is a Christian fundraising site, kind of like GoFundMe. Oh, and this is the one where a, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse raised a million bucks. Yes, exactly. And there's been a lot the guy of who money murdered two people in uh, Wisconsin. Extremist groups. And this data breach has shown that a lot of public officials and a lot of police have been donors in those cases. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's where the right under the guise of Christianity. I mean, you know, which killer would Jesus send his money to? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, <clears throat> Thanks for the call. Very well said. Philip in Herndon, Pennsylvania. Hey, Philip, what's on your mind today? Yes, I've got a terminology for firearms regulation that I'd like to see get expanded. Maybe you could um, do something with it. And that's mm-hmm. the carnage capacity. Carnage capacity. So with some simple math, if you take the muzzle energy of any bullet and then multiply it by the number of bullets in a particular gun, you get the carnage capacity. So like a 38 special would have like a, an 1800. And then you could... Well, it's the third like variable, a- by the way, which is the, the mass of the bullet. Uh, small bullets do less damage than large bullets. And then you could add another variable, which is hollow point bullets do a hell of a lot more damage, even when they're the same mass. Well, it turns out it's the velocity that matters because of the um, physics of um, velocity squared. So that's why, like the AR-15, even though it's a little light bullet, does so much damage because it's going so fast. So, mm-hmm. so like a, a 45 ACP 1911 would be like 4,000 carnage capacity, and you move your way up to like a Glock 17 would be 
7,800 coinage capacity. And you move all the way up to like the AR-15, you're at 43,400 coinage capacity. So you can see the difference. So like a a 12-gauge pump shotgun, six rounds, 2,000 coinage capacity. Yeah. Philip, it's a fascinating metric. Let me think about that. I like the idea how you would put it into place. I mean, it's the sort of thing that you could, it could be like, you know, labels on food. I mean, you know, you could define it. But would it become a selling point? That's that's a concern. Philip, thank you for the call. Interesting. Fascinating. We have like some of the smartest listeners on earth. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In our Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Shadowlands, a new book by Anthony McCann, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff. This is from Chapter 1. My dear friends, Ammon Bundy began and begins again and again every time somebody hits play from 2016 all the way to the end of the Internet. It was the first day of a year that was to scramble an already agitated nation. Along the invisible pathways of the collective mind, the virtual tabernacle of the World Wide Web, Ammon Bundy, cowboy prophet and Facebook hero of liberty, was calling his people to the desert. Soon his friends in what they called the Patriot Movement were all hitting play, activating his familiar face, and sitting back in the glow of their screens as Ammon filled their hearts with urgent feeling. It was time, Ammon was saying, for what he called a hard stand. There had been some confusion about what he'd meant in previous communiques. He'd received some pushback, and he'd sat down now on the eve of calamity in front of the camera to try and clear things up. He's at his desk in a cowboy hat. He wouldn't appear in public much again without one until his arrest weeks later on a mountain road in the snow and pines of Oregon's Hard Luck National Forest. He's wearing a checkered western shirt and sporting what was for him a new, neatly trimmed growth of beard, further softening his visage. But even with a beard, Emmon Bundy couldn't help seeming what he was, a Latter-day Saint, clean-cut to the core. The strongest word I or anyone I know has yet heard him use is creep or hell. Or once, with evident discomfort and while making it clear he was quoting someone else, horse S-word. Before being summoned to the desert of Oregon by his god, that fall he'd been enjoying making apple pies for his Idaho neighbors, using apples from his new orchard and delivering the pies himself. But the quiet idyll of that autumn was already long over. This was to be his last video address to his online community before leading the very next day an armed takeover of Oregon's Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. A MacBook Air laptop is open on his desk, its icon doing its quiet, intrepid work to place all our American lives in dreams, even those of right-wing holy insurrection under its sign. Pale winter light comes through the blinds of the windows behind him. In the video, which he titled Dear Friends, Ammon explains how it was God who had guided him to Oregon two months earlier, through news of the plight of two Harney County ranchers, a father and son, Dwight and Steve Hammond. Mandatory federal sentencing guidelines were about to send the Hammonds back to prison for arson charges stemming from fires on public lands, charges for which they'd already served time. Others, including his own father, had been urging him to look into the story. Like the Hammonds, Ammon's father, Cliven, was also a rancher. The Bundy family had achieved a national profile for the dramatic culmination of their 20-odd years' struggle with federal authorities over their grazing rights on Mojave Desert lands in southern Nevada. That conflict had come to a head in April of 2014 in a remarkable event, an armed standoff with federal agents that had resulted shockingly in a seeming victory for the Bundy clan. This standoff and the family's ongoing struggle with the aftermath of their life-changing actions had felt like enough to Ammon who had recently moved far from southern Nevada to a new home with his wife and six children in the sagebrush of southern Idaho, on the far northern end of Mormon country, on the outskirts of Boise. He himself was not even a rancher anymore, had not been for years. He ran a trucking fleet maintenance business, still headquartered in Arizona. As it turned out, even that move to Idaho would come to seem, to Ammon, a part of God's larger plan for himself, his friends, Harney County, and America. There had been something a little strange about the move, even at the time. He and his wife Lisa had felt a strong, simultaneous urge to relocate. It had been a feeling that had descended as if from nowhere. 
They couldn't understand it entirely, but they followed it anyway and headed out in the spring of 2015, traveling about the Intermountain West looking at houses. Nothing had been quite right. But then on the very last day of their trip, they'd come to this very last house in a beautiful valley in Emmett, Idaho, and had known instantly that this was their place. It was one of many decisions Ammon would be guided to that year. That guidance, to Ammon's mind, had all been providential. How else to explain that he'd ended up moving to within three hours of remote Harney County, Oregon, where the whole Hammond story, which he had known nothing about at that time, had taken place. And now, here he was, just a few months later, barely settled into his new home, asking his online community to join him in Oregon, to take a momentous stand, a stand so big, he said, that nothing less than the future of American freedom might be at stake. After the move to Idaho, his next big revelation had come late one Monday evening on November 2015. On January 1st, seated in front of his camera, he told the tale of that night to his online followers. Lying in bed in his family's new home, tired after a long day, he'd received a message on his phone, a link to yet another article about the Hammonds. In the past, he'd shrugged off messages about the case. I felt that our family was fighting hard enough, he explained. We didn't need to go fight somebody else's battles. But this time, something was different. An urge quickly took possession of him, a sudden impulse to learn all he could about the Hammond family. He searched the Internet and read everything he could find about the case. Unable to sleep, he read on Into the Dawn. The book is Shadowlands by Anthony McCain. Michael in Stockholm, Sweden. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Hey, uh, thank you, Professor. Uh, I want to talk about difference uh, here between the Swedish cops and American cops and how maybe you can adapt the Swedish model. But just one thing Please inform us. (laughs) Certainly. Uh, But also one thing, you talked just about... uh, Taxes. I just uh, got my taxes. We here we Sweden. We get it through our government uh, app, and uh, it took me literally twenty seconds. I looked at everything, checked because they have already done the work, and then I just signed with my ID, and it was done. Uh, wow! So that's uh, re- wow. like uh, here we've got here we've got a bunch of companies that make money filling out your taxes for you, and uh, they want to hold on to that. But anyhow, but to the to the police. Yes, certainly. Uh, here, uh, in uh, you, you have once said that there is uh, three kinds of uh, police officers in the U.S. There is the person who wants to make a difference. There is the person who wants, you know, a good job and a good pension in, in uh, money-wise. And then you got the racist. Uh, that's that's the three types of person in the U.S. But here we only have the the first one, the uh, the police that want to make a difference, and uh, and the reason to that is uh, one, uh, the Swedish uh, police they get uh, uh, around thirty thousand dollar per year, and that's uh, not much. It's like working at McDonald's here. Uh, mm-hmm. Teacher gets uh, you know twice as much. So then you don't have those people who just want a, you know, a, a good paying job. And the third one, uh, the, the racist cops, uh, we don't have them either because um, we have uh, two, two and a half year uh, education in the U.S. You have like six months in California. And, but to get into the academy, I mean, you, you must, everybody can apply, but you must always uh, almost be a straight A student, you must be super fit. Uh, I had a friend who didn't um, manage to become a police officer and became a doctor instead. And the last test of is, is the mental test. And there, there is, you know, even if you uh, ha- have straight A grades and, uh, and everything else, you're likely to fail at the, the last test because you need to be like Dr. Justin Frank to, to be, you know, in your mental health. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's not just work, you know, it's really hard to become a police officer. And then you might say, OK, but if it's that hard, uh, then there will not be enough police officers. But if you instead take that money and uh, invest in you know, preventing crime, you, do, you would not need as much uh, police as you have today. So for like we, we give instead teachers twice as big of police and for example in prisons our prisoners or 
I should say clients, because we can't call them prisoners here. We call prisoners clients in Sweden. Our clients, we give them the best rehabilitation they can get. So when they come out, they don't commit new crime. So therefore, crime is very low because we invest in people. And then we just we have less police and we have just the best police. And we make it so that everybody can't be come up with it. I don't make if I don't know if that I'm very good at explaining. Does that make sense? I, you explained it brilliantly, Michael. So from the point of view of a person who wants to become a police officer in Sweden, they're going to have to go through a couple of years of police academy. They're going to have to have super grades. They got to pass all these tests. I'm assuming that if they're not compensated with, you know, a larger amount of money than the normal worker, that they are compensated by having what must be considered in Sweden to be a very high status job. Do I have that right? Compensated in how when they study, uh, they get paid or mm-hmm. uh, how, I no, don't quite no, uh, no, follow. I, I'm trying to understand why someone would want to become a police officer, and you're saying it's because they want to help society. But it also seems like you know if they've gone through all this that people would recognize that and honor them, that, that, that being, a, being a cop in Sweden would be a high-status job, whereas here it's typically a low-status oh. job. Oh, yeah, you know, no, here is, is a real high-status job. Yes, and now I get your point. Police are respected. Exactly, you know, yes, like the same way I respect a surgeon, a brain surgeon, I have the same respect for a police officer. And also I want to mention on that note that I am not black, but I'm colored, and I have friends that are black. When we see a police officer, we feel safe because why not? It's a police officer. And right. It's just, uh, That's how it should be. That's how it should yeah, be. Exactly. Michael, thank you. Thank you for watching us in Sweden on YouTube, and thank you so much for the call. It's great to hear from you. I hope we can talk again. It is, uh, it, oh, it's the end of the show. <laughs> Thanks for being with us today. I could do another hour of this. Have a great afternoon. Have a great weekend. Don't forget, democracy is not an accident. If we want America to be more like Sweden, we've got to work on it. And that means you. So get out there, get active, take your end. Have a wonderful weekend. Be good to yourself and all those around you. We'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 